The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Your Bibles now, if you would please, to Second Peter chapter 1. And this evening, our subject again is on the growth process, maturing in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, we are talking about the doctrine of sanctification. Uh, the scriptures have various ways of expressing that, but I think probably the one that we're most familiar with is the terminology of the fruit of the Spirit. That is actually sanctification. Uh, Jesus often talked about fruit trees as indicators of whether uh, the fruit of the tree is whether a tree is a good tree or a, a bad tree. He compared our lives to trees and he said the fruits of your life are an indicator of the condition of your heart. A Christian, one who really does know Christ, is always going to bear some kind of fruit for the Lord Jesus Christ. A fruit tree does well according to the nutrients that are found in the soil. And likewise, the abundance of good fruits in the Christian life will be found according uh, or is dependent upon how that Christian is nourished by the graces of the Spirit that are found in the Scriptures. And so we are enabled for a growth process. We can have the proper kind of growth if we have the right nutrients. And the Bible tells us what these nutrients are that will enhance our sanctification. And if you look at verse number 1 of this text, you'll see uh, this phrase, like precious faith. Faith is the starting place for this. Faith is what we build upon because the Scripture tells us without faith it is impossible to please God. And as you read on down through that passage, we see that grace is multiplied in the knowledge of Christ. And so we find there the key nutrient, the main thing, the one from which all Christian graces flow, and that is the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And, of course, that would point us to the only place where this knowledge can be found, and that would be the Word of God. And so every time that we talk about this subject, we're always drawn back to this particular thing. Uh, the main thing that we're drawn back to is the Word of God, that we must know God's Word, because there we find the knowledge of Christ. Now, the text that we have here that we've been studying for all of these weeks is about the enablement of growth. And in verse number 3, it says that there is divine power that's in a Christian that provides for us everything for life and godliness. Divine power is supplied by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He implants a new nature in us, in regeneration, and through that nature, we are enabled to do God's work. And what we do as Christians is to live out of that divine nature, because the old nature that we have uh, in our lost condition is is without power to holiness. That old nature has to be suppressed in us. We know that it's still in us, and it does have to be suppressed because that will hinder our spiritual growth. So what God has done for us then, he's really given us the perfect setup for fruit bearing. He's designed the Christian life to work in this way, that he starts out by giving us faith. Uh, we obtain faith that's given as a grace of God. Then we are renewed by the Holy Spirit as he gives us a new nature and the divine power is in us. And then he also gives us the food source. And that food source is the Word of God. 
So we have everything that's in place for sanctification. And when all of that is put together, there will be growth. And growth is not just a potentiality for God's people. Growth is God's expectation because, again, the Scripture says, He has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And if He's given us those things, then you can expect that His expectations will be high. Well, there's much to do about which point or at what point God expects that man becomes active in his salvation. We do know that in his regeneration that he is inactive, that we are spiritually dead. And so the Holy Spirit in regeneration begins to work beneath our consciousness to bring us into spiritual life. But then as soon as that spiritual life is given, that's when we become active. And our spiritual switch, you might say, has been turned on in regeneration so that then we can come to Christ in repentance and faith. Now, when we speak about conversion to Christ, that is our activity. And it is at that point that having turned to God, we now have a new passion to serve God. I think it's interesting in Scripture that these two concepts are often combined. Regeneration and conversion uh, go together. You can't have one without the other. And so sometimes they are combined under one heading. And so if someone talks about your conversion also being your regeneration, uh, don't think that they're so far off because the Bible does, uh, does combine those at times. But upon that regeneration, upon our conversion, we immediately enter into this lifelong process of sanctification. And that will continue as long as we're here until we reach our glorification in heaven. And so the Christian life, then, is one in which we cooperate with God where before we could not cooperate because, as I said, we were spiritually dead. And so this new ability is why we have scriptures such as Philippians 2, verse number 12. There it says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And that is actually a command from the apostle to be busy about gospel duties. John Gill stated it this way. He said, we are to hear the word, to submit to gospel ordinances, and to discharge every branch of moral, spiritual, and evangelical obedience. And that same responsibility is mentioned in another way in the Great Commission. We read it this morning, and that's where the commission says that we are to teach people to observe all things that Christ has commanded. So Peter has the same thing in mind, and the word that he uses here to work out salvation is the word diligence, that we are to be diligent about applying and obtaining Christian graces in our lives. And so we have a tree, a spiritual tree, that is to grow with every branch of moral, spiritual, and evangelical obedience. And the branches of our tree are the graces that are mentioned in verses 5 through 7. And I've explained those. those are, there are seven of those. They touch everything that God expects the Christian life to be. So they are actually the fruits of our regeneration. Now, in our outline, uh, remember I said uh, Peter doesn't use that terminology. That's, Paul uses that. Jesus used it. Peter doesn't talk about fruits of the Spirit. But it's the same thing that he has in mind. And so we've called those things the indicators of growth. How do you tell that a person, that a Christian is actually growing in his faith? Well, he'll have these graces. 
He'll be virtuous, he'll be knowledgeable, he'll be self-controlled and patient and godly and charitable. He loves God, he loves his fellow man. And all of these graces are in him and they grow and they increase as the knowledge of Jesus Christ also increases. We've also spoken of these graces not as independent graces but as interdependent because where you find one of them, you'll also find the others and they are increased according to the measure of the believer's faith. Now that's actually the point that we left off in the last message, that the Christian graces will culminate in the highest standard of our faith, and that highest standard is that we have the mind of Christ. Well, that brings me to the second part of our discussion that I want to begin tonight. And I want to start at reading at verse number 8. If you'll look in Second Peter chapter 1 and verse number 8, Peter says, For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So first we've talked about the indicators of growth, and now we want to take up this part, and that is the importance of growth. Why isn't it it just good enough to be saved, and just to have this knowledge that you're on your way to heaven, and be content with that knowledge alone? Why isn't that good enough? Well, for a real Christian who loves the Lord and uh, I think one who's been touched by the grace of God, we have a problem with that because we cannot be content if all that we do is to focus on self. The Christian life has been designed to glorify God. And knowing that you're saved from hell, that is a wonderful benefit. That's a great thing for you to know. And knowing that you're saved from hell will cause you to appreciate Christ But if you just have that information alone, and that's the place that you focus all of the time, then you're talking about the advantage that you have received rather than about Christ's exaltation. And so a believer increasing in its sanctification is not satisfied to stay on this very base level of Christianity. And you have to to know that, that, that if that's what you concentrate on all the time, I've been saved from hell, then you are really down at the very base level of Christianity. And so a person who, uh, who is growing in Christ wants to know more. He wants to increase in the knowledge of Christ. And when that happens, that will deepen his assurance that he has actually been delivered from hell. Now, you see, we are designed to be different from the world. We're designed to be different from what we were. And uh, we are designed to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so if we're not moving in that direction, if we're not actually becoming more like what Christ is, then we're just simply not going to be content. We can't be satisfied with that. And I think this is the reason that when a person who's been a Christian for a long time, and they finally get into a... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, praise our church here for just a minute. But when, when a person finally gets into a church like Berean Baptist Church and and begins to hear things that he's never heard before. I mean, parts of the scripture that haven't been preached before, that he didn't know before, then all of a sudden you see in people, maybe not suddenly, but you do see in people a renewed vigor with their salvation. 
that you see a perk up. You see the spiritual life beginning to blossom with assurance of the joy of salvation. Now, the importance of, of growth is scattered throughout this passage, and the explanation of what the benefits of it are in these seven graces. And at the top of the list of importance would be the main purpose of all these graces, and that's what I just said, to become like Christ. Or in short, that is, our sanctification. But what I'd like to do for us tonight is to look at this subject a little bit differently from what we have. Uh, There are benefits that you receive from your growth, and you want to do this because there are some really good reasons for it. There's some personal satisfaction that comes out of your sanctification. Now, the first of the benefits I think we can see in verse number 2, where Peter says, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, I've simplified this, that our first benefit is multiplication. We have multiplication. Now, Peter's desire for his converts is for grace and peace to multiply in their lives. Now, if you've read Scripture much, if you read the epistles very much, you'll recognize grace and peace is one of the common salutations of the epistles. Um, it's a regular part of some of the epistles in the Bible, and we, we may read those words, and we have over and over again, and we might read them without considering uh, what, what the importance of those words, because they are so common. I mean, this would be something like beginning a letter where you would write, I hope this, this, that this letter finds you well. Uh, you would see that in a letter, and you would just read on. You would just sort of pass over that. You wouldn't think about it. Uh, those kinds of phrases are put into letters, and you might use things like that as an icebreaker to get you into the conversation and to get to the more important things that you really want to talk about. But when you read Scripture, you can't look at the salutations of Scripture in that way. Especially you can't do that when you read the epistles. You have to be aware that every word that's written in the Bible was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and there isn't anything put in the Bible that is superfluous. There's a reason for things that are here. Uh, When God speaks, you can't slide by what he says, because whenever he makes a comment about anything, it's going to be an important comment. Now, grace and peace here for Peter are not simply words of salutation. They're not fluff to get him into the real conversation. But Peter's information that he gives in this letter will actually bring them, as the people of God, more grace and peace. And so if you did see something like this in his letters, where it said, I hope this letter finds you well, then you can be sure that by the time you got to the end of reading his letter, there is something there that is going to make you better than what you are. You're going to be well. Now, we've been through uh, all of these graces individually, and I think at this point what we can do is we can just lump them all together into one category and just call them the marvelous benefits that are received by the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Now, the perception of God's marvelous works are meager at first among new Christians. Salvation from hell, while that is a monumental benefit, that is still, as I've said, a very ground-level truth of the Christian faith. That's appreciated by new converts. But as grace is multiplied and as faith increases in a Christian we now have a, or we, we develop a just a greater appreciation for God's work. As Calvin said, 
He said, we perceive the grace of God according to the measure of our faith. And so you learn more of the grace of God as you increase in your faith in Christ. Then the second part of this is peace. Peace is a settled heart. We're at peace when hostility with God has ceased. And instead of being enemies of God, we have moved uh, over to God's side. Or we might say that God is on our side, whichever way that you want to put that. And for beleaguered Christians, that is really good news. I mean, the extent of the contentment of a believer is based upon how much that he does rely upon God. Or rely upon God. Now, we receive God's favor by becoming his friends. And the more that we understand of the work that Christ has done for us, then the greater will be our contentment. When God is recognized that he is the controlling ruler of all that happens to us, then then we're more assured of that promise that he's given that everything that he does is going to work out for our good. We, We even come to understand that things that are very bad that happen in our lives, that somehow because God is in control, he is actually guiding those things and is working them out for our good. So we can take bad things, what we consider to be bad things, and he uses good things as well, and he just uses those things to shape us in the way that he wants us to be. Now, if you'll just turn a few pages back to 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter gives us here uh, uh, some insight into the struggle that we endure, and he tells us that we're facing an adversary that we are incapable of dealing with. 1 Peter 5, verse number 8, he said, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. So he says there is a lion that's lurking out there, and this lion is not Cecil. He's not the beloved lion that we read about in the papers a a couple of months or so ago. Uh, Apparently a lion that never hurt a fly on the savannah. I mean, according to the news media... Apparently, Cecil, who was shot by this gung-ho dentist, was actually a grass-eating lion, not a man-eater. And so, uh, uh, you know, you might want to ask some Zimbabweans about that, uh, some of them who've had some family members that have been eaten by lions, if they're really sad when a lion gets his just desserts. But this is not Cecil that Peter's warning us about. This is not Simba from the Lion King that he's warning about. We're talking about a man-eating lion that is always stalking his prey, and at his first opportunity, he's going to devour him. Peter goes on in verse number 9, and he says, Whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Now, the devil is going to gobble up all those who do not resist him. So we have to ask, how do we resist him? Well, Peter says we do that with a steadfast faith. And how does that faith become steadfast? It has to be built. It has to be fortified. It must be increased. And that's done with the spiritual graces. And those all flow out of the knowledge of Christ. So if you have low levels of knowledge, then you're going to have low levels of faith. And then you notice in that fifth chapter, verse number 10, he says, But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while... Make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. Christians, of course, will suffer many afflictions. The Christian life is fraught with trouble. But what is it that afflictions do for you? Well, they make you steadfast in the faith. 
the Word of God says that they will make you perfect. Does that mean that you'll be sinless? No, that's not what it means. But it does mean that you will sin less. As you mature in your faith in Christ, you will sin less. You will be established and you will be strengthened. And then you'll notice this word that he uses. It will settle you. You will be settled. Now, settled is a, is a great word here. It comes from another word that means a firm foundation. And so you rest in the assurance that God is with you. Your faith rests upon a firm foundation that God is for you and that God fortifies you. And if you know that, then you can say, who can be against me? Who is against me if God is for me? Now, when you have that sense that God is fortifying you, there's peace. That's where your peace comes from. There's assurance that you have that you belong to Christ. You understand that He is your shield and your buckler. He's the high tower. He's your defense in the time of trouble. Hebrews 13 says, Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. This is what Peter is speaking of. Grace and peace are multiplied. They're multiplied through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So knowledge is actually that medium that God uses. And so if there is a superior reason why you would want to step up beyond just the elementary ideas and doctrines of Christianity, this would be it. That you get overwhelming peace. You get abundant peace that just flows over your soul when you know more about Christ. Now you think about this for just a minute, that Jesus said, I and my Father are one. And he said that there's no one who knows the Father except those to whom the Son reveals him. And that's what Jesus is. He is the visible manifestation of the Father. He is the express image of his person. Now it's common when we talk about the Father to speak of the Father in the realm of providence. That whenever we talk about providence, that seems to be the area where God works. So providence is generally the realm of the Father. Now the last time when I was speaking on this subject, I talked about common grace. Grace that God gives to every person. That there is a measure of grace that he provides for every person in the world, whether you're saved or you're lost. He gives you air to breathe. He gives you food to eat. He gives rain for the crops and heat for warmth and shelter from the cold. Um, he is a provider. That's a measure of grace that God gives. But that in no way touches the fullness of grace that is available to the believer in Christ. You see, one day, common grace is going to end. There's coming a time when there won't be any grace for those who are not believers in Jesus Christ. Common grace will be done away with. That's over with, and no lost person will again experience any of God's grace. But that's not true for a believer. For grace, uh, the grace for a believer and peace for a believer is never going to end. We're going to see Christ face to face and we're going to enjoy him forever. And grace and peace are going to continue for eternity. And this is why Paul writes in Ephesians 1, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And you go on reading from that verse, and you read all the way down to verse number 14, where Paul has this one long sentence, one of the longest sentences that you find in the Bible. And in that one long sentence, 
He explains all of these benefits that flow out of the work of Christ. And you find this to be true, that Bible authors are always lauding the virtues of Christ, and that's because knowing Him in His essential glory is to be overwhelmed with grace and peace. And so the first benefit that we get from our sanctification, as it gets higher, grace and peace are multiplied. Now, secondly, there is production. Now, back to our text in verse number 8. It says, For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, all of this talk about growing, the importance of growing is to get us to the stage of fruit production. Now, as Albert Barnes points out, uh, there's an interesting meaning to the word barren. Uh, He says that ye shall neither be barren, and you might actually see this in the margin of some of your Bibles, that that word barren means idle. A person that is idle bears no fruit. A Christian that sits still is idle, and he'll produce no fruit. And without fruit, there is no assurance, because faith that doesn't work, an idle faith, is never going to give a demonstration that it's real. Now, verse number 5 shows that faith is our foundation. And if you have an idle faith, then you can say that you have a cracked foundation. And whatever you build upon that cracked foundation, a foundation of idle faith is going to be a building that will crumble. Now, you notice here that we mix a lot of different metaphors when talking about this subject. We talk about buildings with foundations and trees and roots and fruit and all those kinds of things. And we mix those metaphors quite freely while we're on this subject. But all of it means exactly the same thing, that if you take and you build a structure on top of the wrong kind of faith, then it's, not gonna, it's a building that's not going to stand. Just like a tree uh, won't produce the right kind of thing if it's not planted in the right place, if it doesn't have the right nourishment, the right nutrients in the soil, it's going to produce bad fruit instead of good fruit. Now, when we talk about fruit production, that doesn't mean that you are any more saved because you have fruit in your life than you would be if you had just meager amounts of fruit. You see, a Christian in his initial faith is just as much a Christian as he'll ever be. He's just as much a Christian as as the person who turned in to be Charles Spurgeon. But what that Christian does not have, he doesn't have the assurance of his salvation like a man like Charles Spurgeon had. And he won't have that, and you won't have that unless there is a demonstration that your faith is real. And that's what fruit-bearing is all about. That's to let you know faith is real. Now, not only is the faith real, but Christ himself also becomes more real to you. Now, I hope you understand this. When we talk about faith for Christians, we're not talking about something that is ethereal. Our faith is anchored in a person. And if your faith increases, then your confidence And the reality of that person also increases. And so if you don't see your life changing by a faith that is demonstrated, then you can be sure that your confidence in the person in which you place your faith is also going to be deficient. It will will suffer for that. Now the reason that we find these topics in 2 Peter is that Peter is writing to help embattled Christians. These are people that face much harder times than any of us have ever seen. And if what he writes here was able to help them, and it was able to strengthen them, then we ought to see that if we do the same things that he told them, 
then our faith has to be increased. We don't face what they did, and yet they were built up by this. They were helped by it, so you can be sure you're going to be helped by it as well if you just pay attention and do what Peter says here. Now, in the last part of the letter, the problem that Peter uh, brings them to is a discussion about false teachers and about the wrath of God. And he wants these people to be sure that they're not going to be found false witnesses of Jesus Christ. In other words, that their faith wasn't actually real. And the reason for that is because the reprobate, ones who don't know Christ, are going to face God's wrath. And so the incentive for these people was always to look for fruit. Keep looking for fruit. That way we know that we're not false witnesses of Christ. That way we know we're never going to face the wrath of God. And so a key benefit from growing in the faith, being sanctified and applying the spiritual graces is that they know that they're saved, that God is really their Savior. So Peter says you keep adding these graces, you keep growing in these graces, and you're not going to be barren. The fruit production will be there, and that is the demonstration that faith is real. That shows that you actually do have salvation. Now we move on then to verse number 9. And he says, But he that lacketh these things is blind, and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Now, he says, But he that lacketh these things. Remember I told you, uh, I think last time or the time before, that Peter doesn't talk about fruit of the Spirit. He doesn't use that terminology. He just uses very simple words. These things. And these things that he's talking about are those seven graces that came in verses 5 through 7. And he says, the person who lacks these things is blind and cannot see afar off and have forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. So what he's telling us here is that the importance of our growth is for another great benefit, and that is for our memorization. Now in one fell swoop here, Peter expresses the the problem with stagnant, non-growing Christians. These are Christians that lose hope. They develop spiritual myopia and spiritual amnesia. These are people that forget that they have been purged by the blood of Jesus Christ, that they have been saved out of their sins. Now, in this group here, we would probably think about this and say, well, that's almost impossible to believe. This is almost impossible to believe that there's any Christian that would ever find his way to this place. And yet we know that there is a major part of ministry in the church that's spent dealing with people that have lost hope. That we have to encourage people who actually have great reason for hope, but we have to supply them with something that will help them combat their insecurities. Now, in our deacons' meetings, there's always a time that we set aside to discuss membership problems. We, we talk about you. Did you know that? We talk about you. We talk about people that are, that are falling, people that, have, that are failing, people that need attention. And we think, well, why is it necessary for us to spend time tracking down members that have fallen out of fellowship for long extended periods of time? Well, Peter nailed it down here in verse number 9. He says they have never, I mean, essentially what he's saying, they have not developed the spiritual graces. And when they don't develop them, there is something else that develops... And that is short-sightedness and forgetfulness. I mean, who is it that could meditate on the sufferings of Christ and what he's done for us, see what Christ has done for us, and then just fall out with God? 
You can't do that. You only do that if you lack spiritual graces. So oddly enough, no growth has its own field of production. And the crop of no growth is spiritual blindness and spiritual dementia. People forget. Oh, it seems impossible that they could ever forget what God has done, but they do. And so we have to give attention to them. And you know, that's a very sad commentary on Christians, that attention has to be paid to people. When, when we, We've got so many people in the church that would just love to hear more of the Word of God. They want to be taught. And yet we have to turn our attention to those who are fighting tooth and toenail not to be taught. They don't want to know these things. And so it's sad when you find Christians sitting in the pew that actually become hindrances to the growth of the church. See, if you're a person who sits there, you hear the word, and yet there isn't any change in your life, any change in the level of sanctification, you're not a help to the church. You are a hindrance to the church's work. Idle Christians will always slow down the progress of the Lord's church. Now, if you look at verses 5 and 7 again, you see virtue and goodness, and these are graces that are never developed by an amnesiac Christian. And you can see that sometimes in people when they come to church. You look at them and you wonder, what happened to them? What's wrong with them? Why do they look like they do? Now, for some of them, their personal habits are a shame. Public appearance is a shame, notwithstanding what Matt was wearing earlier. But uh, public appearances are just a shame. And, And more often than not, when you see something like that, that is the sign of a troubled heart. When you have trouble with all these worldly dalliances, and when the world seems to have more effect on you than God's Word has on you, that is a red flag that goes up that says, this person may not even be a Christian at all. You see, if the Word doesn't convict you and it doesn't change you, it may be because your faith isn't real, that there isn't any place for the Word of God to build on. See, Christian graces can't grow unless they're in the environment for growth. And do you know what the environment for growth in the Christian life is? It's a person who has been regenerated. It's a person who actually has faith in Christ. It's, it, he has that new nature implanted in regeneration. That's the environment for growth. And if there's not any growth, then what would that be a sign of? That those things are absent. That you don't actually have those. So, so this is the very problem that Peter is trying to warn these Christians about. If there is no growth there, then you had better start getting concerned about your salvation. Is there something wrong with you? Do you actually know Christ? Now, this is kind of a a strange thing. I mean, Jesus' warnings in Matthew 7 are very stern about this. And yet, for many people, the the words that Jesus said uh, ring hollow. The words they say about Jesus ring hollow. And in the last day, uh, when they're talking about all the times that they came to church and all the things that they did for the Lord, that he's going to finally say to them, I didn't even know you. Your faith wasn't even real. And that's kind of a twist here. They failed in their knowledge of Christ, and it turns around that he fails in his knowledge of them. He didn't really know them because they aren't true Christians. So there's great cause for us to be self-circumspect. Now back to Philippians 2, verse number 12 that I read a moment ago. There Paul said, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have also obeyed, 
not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You need to know, is your salvation real? Now, we look back at our text, and it says, But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off. Now, I find that to be interesting because this is a medical diagnosis. He cannot see afar off. An optometrist couldn't have described this any better. You know, an optometrist checks out your eyes and he puts that, um, puts that big monster thing on your head and then uh, he starts flipping all those little lenses there and then when he's done flipping all the lenses, he comes out with his diagnosis. Here's your problem. You are nearsighted. You cannot see afar off. And that's actually this phrase that we find here in Scripture, cannot see afar off, that it's translated from the Greek word muapadzo. It's a word that means myopic. And that's Peter's medical diagnosis of spiritual health. Now let me see if I can help get that meaning across to you. What is, it, what is a person who is myopic, who cannot see afar off? Well, this is a person who really doesn't have any idea of the grand design of salvation. Now we know that people don't have to be Bible scholars in order to be saved. Meager knowledge may not allow you when you, especially your first saved, that meager knowledge that you have may not allow you to actually see the big picture of what's going on. Uh, you don't understand that. You may not understand that God's glory is actually the grand design of his salvation. Now, the myopic Christian is the one who sees just a very small segment of this, and what he sees is the immediate benefit of his salvation, and that would be what we mentioned earlier, and that is, I'm saved from hell. That's the immediate benefit of salvation. And that's the view that he has. That's the thing that he sees. And so myopia says, what's all the rest of this stuff for? What's really the purpose and what's the benefit of all this study that you talk about doing? What's the benefit of finding a church that doesn't just give you more or, or gives you more than sweet platitudes and pansies in the sermons? What's the benefit of that? Well, the point is, they can't see afar off. They, they don't see where it's going. They don't see the big picture of how that increasing their knowledge of Christ opens up this whole new world of spiritual vision. There's such a big, wider picture that's out there. The, the view widens as you learn more about Christ. This is why I feel so, far, uh, so sorry for thousands upon thousands of our Baptist brethren who have never learned the doctrines of grace. They, they have a spiritual myopia of their own. They don't see the big picture, I don't think, as we do and what we teach, that this is for the glory of God. It's not just about saving people from hell. God's glory is essential here. And I've told you about this before, and, and you remember this, that, that there were people that when I first started preaching here and started talking about how salvation is not about you, that it's about God, it's for the glory of God, that people said, well, we've never actually heard that said before. Never heard it taught that way before. That we're to be thinking about God more than about me when it comes to our salvation. That's the big picture. Salvation is for the glory of God. But going back to this particular problem, have you ever met Christians that are firecrackers when they first get saved, but then they prove that they are spiritual duds? Have you known Christians like that? I mean, the fuse was lit when they got saved. They got all fired up. But then what they never cared to do was to develop 
spiritual graces. And so now they barely hang on, if at all. And those are usually the church members that we're chasing down, trying to find out what's wrong, trying to get them back in the service of the Lord. Now let me add another word to this. That a myopic Christian does not understand the fullness of Christ's work, and he begins to forget that he was purged from his old sins. Now what could Peter mean by that statement? Barnes put it this way, He forgets the obligation to a system whose design was to purify the heart. Isn't that very telling? Barnes is talking about sanctification. That the purpose of salvation is to sanctify. It is to mold the believer into the image of Christ. And if that doesn't happen, if that's the purpose of salvation, if it doesn't happen, then you have to ask the question, is that person saved? And so you can see here how that Peter shows that the lack of development of these graces tears down everything that salvation was intended to do. There is an obligation in salvation, and it should come very clearly into focus, that it's much more. It is much more than being saved from hell. The purpose is to produce holy people, people that live to the glory of God. And so if that never happens in your life, you have to think, what good are you to God? I mean, God might as well have just left you right where you were. You're not any good for any light in his kingdom, so what's his purpose in saving you? If the main purpose of salvation is the glory of God and you don't glorify God, then why did he save you? Presents a problem, I think. I mean, this is why we, we, we just see this constant barrage of information that talks about how good that God is and how that this is not about you, it is about God. And do you know that man-centered theology is never going to get you to that place? And it won't because the focus is wrong. And God doesn't want the focus to be wrong. He wants the spotlight to be on Christ. The spotlight of salvation is to be on Christ, not you. And that's why it's always telling us to learn Christ. Now, if you were the focus, this point would never be made this much in Scripture. But as you look at it, can you tell me which places that you've read in the Bible, where can you read any of the epistles, or where can you read any of the Bible where you find that God emphasizes man? Where is God putting the, the, all the emphasis on what man does and what man can do Instead of himself. Where is that scripture? I haven't found it. I haven't seen it. And it doesn't exist anywhere except in the minds of short-sighted men. So working out our salvation, sanctification, that is a responsibility, as Barnes put it. And he said that responsibility is to make as high, to make as high attainments as possible. As high as possible. And that's high indeed. And you know why? Because God said that he has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We're expected to get there. So spiritual myopia and spiritual amnesia are not where you want to be. Both of those are conditions of an unspiritual mind. And your mind should be the mind of Christ. There is no hope of any development towards Christ when you have those two conditions. Well, there are two more important benefits that we find in the text, in the next verses, and those deserve more time than I can give them tonight. So we're going to stop at this point.
and uh, those two points will make a message by themselves. So we conclude with this, that is that we are to remember, not to forget, that growth is critical for the assurance of our faith. It is critical for multiplication of grace and peace, for the production of fruit, which are the chief markers of born-again believers. And then it's important for memorization, that we don't forget what Christ has done for us, and that we begin to understand the big picture of salvation, which is the glory of God. Now, you remember that, and you will have assurance of your faith, and then you will be more than happy to give yourself in the service of the King. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what the Apostle Peter has said here, the great advice that he's given us. You have designed our lives as Christians to become like you, to magnify you, to glorify you in everything that we do. And in order for us to do that, we must be sanctified by adding these spiritual graces. Help us to understand that, Lord. Help us to stay on the right track, to have a steadfast faith, to do what it takes to build our faith through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So help us as we continue to study your word, to make that fact a reality. Thank you, Lord. Bless your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.